This episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films is brought to you by Tops. Voyage across the Star Wars galaxy with Tops with their all new trading card collection. Tops, journey to Star Wars The Last Jedi. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films. The official Expanded Universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 223 of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, as well as canon. Your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, 2nd Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.StarWarsReport.com. Com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes as well as Stitcher and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman. And with me like an ID-10 secret droid on the back of epicness, the EU guru himself, the count of our two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Hey everybody, and that introduction gives us the perfect response of, get off my back! That that does, I didn't even think about that. Yeah, apparently I'm just a monkey that Mark carries around, which is actually kind of true. Speaking of things to get off your back, are are you ready to just tell everybody to get off your back about the newest release of Star Wars Timeline Gold? (laughs) Well, you know, it's, you know, the pressure is building. It's all right. We're we're recording this on October 1st, so I've got a little over two weeks to get the last of, you know, everything done. Um, but yeah, so folks, by the time you get this episode, um, we'll be coming relatively close to the release of the 2017 edition of the Star Wars Timeline Gold. Um, that, of course, you can find at StarWarsFanWorks.com slash timeline. It is the most comprehensive Star Wars chronology available anywhere. And uh, I want to say there's about 160 plus pages of new material added for this year's edition. I'm working right now on getting the last of the stories read from from a certain point of view because I was think you know we we thankfully got that a little bit early as a really as a uh, uh, review copy which is mind boggling it actually came early so I'm trying to get that set up and in there keeping up with the comics as they're released and that sort of thing but then on October 17 you will see the release of that uh, new edition for the new year you'll have your canon document the uh, legends document that goes. Uh, up to A New Hope, the Legends document that picks up with A New Hope and goes onward. You'll have the Legends Clone Wars supplement that has the two different versions of the Clone Wars, really. Um, the pre- and post-2008 interpretations of it. And then you'll, of course, have the appendices file to go with it. It has a bunch of other odds and ends stuff, like a publishing timeline and things like that. But that'll be available on uh, the 17th. That's also when I'm launching the Patreon, finally. So you'll have a, a patreon.com slash Nathan P. Butler, all this one word, will be where my Patreon can be found. And when you go there, you'll be able to find stuff like uh, just sort of basic information about what I do, why I do it, and and why the Patreon has been started. But it's being set up so that basically anyone who chooses to pledge, I guess is what it's called, uh, pledge a dollar a month, winds up getting uh, their name in the credits of all of my new monthly update videos of what's going on with the projects that'll be on YouTube. Uh, you also wind up getting your name on a special Patreon thanks page in the next edition, whenever it may be, of uh, uh, my book, A Saga of, on Home Video. Then those who decide to pledge $5 or more get access to an ex- some exclusive content that I'm creating. I'm creating Clone Wars and then later Rebels and so forth uh, audio commentaries that you can listen to while you watch the episodes. So, 
Five bucks gets someone access to that library with two of those coming out at least each month. And then those who pledge $10 or more wind up in a position where they also get, of course, they get the previous tiers, but they also wind up getting access to an exclusive Q&A video just for Patreon supporters um, that'll be done uh, through YouTube and through Patreon, where it's exclusive in the sense that they get to ask the questions. They're the only ones who also get to watch those videos, and at least one of those will be produced per month. And we set the goal that if we can get it so that with all the pledges coming in, we hit $500 or more per month as the, uh, the, the pledge amount, when it all gets aggregated together, then I will be bringing back from the Star Wars library, not from the Star Wars home video library, but the original series, from the Star Wars library on YouTube with at least one new episode per month. There's also information that's going to be on the Patreon page for those who want to get a signed copy of a saga on home video and haven't had a chance yet, a way to kind of make that happen as well. So I'm really excited about getting that launched, but trying to have that ready and have the timeline ready and a release video telling people what's new in the timeline for YouTube and all kinds of stuff. It's it's a lot of stuff to get done here in really just the next couple of weeks. It's 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 going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting, but it will happen. Yeah. Get off his back. He's got it coming, man. He's got this. Exactly. Speaking of things you got, you've also got the winner of our last book contest as well as the new contest details coming up, right? Yes, we do. Um, we have, of course, as our new contest that is coming up, we'll be giving away a copy of Leia, Princess of Alderaan. So stay tuned for the end of the episode for that. We also, though, have our winner drawn for the copy of Phasma. The winner of the copy of Phasma from our previous episode, you had to have your entries in by the end of September, is David Modders of Florida. So congratulations, David. And again, keep an ear out because we will be giving away a copy of Leia, Princess of Alderaan, later in the episode. It's always awesome when it's fans that we know. You know, it's, it's definitely a beyonder. You're like, yeah, like it's not some random person, which is also awesome because it's random people <laughs> that we don't know. But I don't know. There's something about that beyonder sense when you're like, you're like, you chat with these folks all the time and you're like, dude, you won the book. Awesome. Yeah, and it usually winds up being for those who are uh, who are curious. I wind up counting up the number of uh, people that entered, and in this case, we had uh, a small enough group that I just kind of turned to Mark and say, "Okay, pick a number from one to whatever, and whatever number he picks, we pull it out. If it's enough that I need to break out some dice and roll them, we start doing that to kind of randomize it." Um, but yeah, it's interesting that the last two have wound up when uh, when randomly pulled been people. Um, who listeners probably know name-wise because of the feedback episodes, um, Dave and then Kenny. So, mm-hmm. kind of cool. Yeah, and then you said the next one, that's the Leia Princess of Alderaan. Do we have details on how they could win with that one? Uh, yes, we do, but let's uh, stick it at the end of the episode. You know, it makes sure people Ooh, actually listen. I like that. So, you've got your pre-wet teaser right there. And, yeah, speaking of things that, that have slid by also, uh, we had National Podcast Day was yesterday. I Yep. You know, that one slides by, like, you'd think, like, I would be paying more attention to that, like, <laughs> but well, no, like. I think that the national or international, I guess it is, podcast day thing, for me, it's a day to feel old. It's <laughs> like the, when I put the timeline out this year, it's the 20th anniversary edition of that timeline. I've been working on that thing for 20 years, and I'm not 40 yet. So we're not talking about half my life. We're talking about more than half of my life at this point. And I look back at the international podcasting and I'm like, wow, you know, I could celebrate podcasting by doing something. Maybe I could, I could dig up some of my old podcasts and repost them somewhere or something. Oh, my old podcasts are 15 years old now. <laughs> God, I'm old. Uh, it's just one of those things where I think, I think it's, it's a combination of things. One, when you're doing something that you enjoy, it doesn't feel like it's taking as long or it's been going on for as long as it has been. Like, my wife and I have been together now. We're going on 10 years. And it doesn't feel like it's been a whole 10 years. 
Um, same thing with the timeline. Doesn't feel like it's been 20. Podcasting doesn't feel like it's been 15 because it's enjoyable. But at the same time, I wonder if part of that also is that I started the uh, the timeline when I was a senior in high school, and I started podcasting right after I graduated from um, getting my bachelor's and, and was about to start teaching in 2002. So there's a part of me that says, well, maybe what it is is that before I was doing these things, everything was measured in like kid time. Mm -hmm. And you could always tell the passage of time because it was constantly, well, I'm in this grade, I'm in this grade, I'm in this grade, I'm in this year of college. Whereas when you're an adult, it's all kind of one big thing unless you constantly have these changing moments in your life that cause you to delineate your life into these chunks, you know? So it's all adulthood for me. And in each case, both of them started prior to meeting my wife. So in essence, it's sort of it's from that pre-married era, continuing into the married era. But I don't tend to divide my life up in more small chunks than that. So to me, it doesn't feel like it's been, God, 50 years or 50 years. No, it's not 50 years, 15 years (laughs) and 20 years. If it's 50 years and I'm still doing the timeline, good Lord. Um, if it's 50 years and I'm still podcasting, I hope that we're able to drop some sponsorship from Depends. <laughs> See, for me, it's, it's my daughter is the same age as my marriage. We just celebrated 15 years of marriage on the 26th. And so it's it's easy to do that. But for our show, my daughter, Jana, was born the year we launched. So it's like, whatever she is, like we're going on six years. I'm like, right on. I don't even I don't even know how long this show has been going on. Six years. That's this, what I mean. Oh, it's this show. I thought you were talking about yeah. Star Wars Report. Star Wars Report goes back even further than that. Oh my God, we've been doing this show for six years. Yeah, right. <laughs> really? I, it just blows my mind. I I, I forgot that she wasn't born when we launched. We launched. Kate was still pregnant with her. <laughs> it was like wow. really. I thought for sure like. Like, wow. That is crazy. I thought that was so much farther back. (laughs) That is that is that is truly nuts. Um, Speaking of truly nuts, we have ourselves an interesting topic to cover this time. It is a book that gives us what many would say is a very underused perspective on Star Wars, which one might argue is kind of nuts. Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or those simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we explore Christy Golden's Battlefront 2 Inferno Squad. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. Nate, what did you think about this one, my man? Well, first off, before we even get to the content of the book, let me say that one thing that I think is that we are... It is continuing a pattern that is concerning to me, which is variant covers for books. The Marvel Madness? The Marvel Madness. <laughs> I've talked about this before. I'm not going to go too in-depth with it, but suffice to say, I'm not going to bring up my concerns. I do want to point out, though, what different versions exist out there. For those of you who, like me, were trying to get all of them. Okay, So there's a regular version that's out there that is just the normal cover or the normal book itself, the normal dust jacket around the book, uh, not signed or anything like that. It's just a regular hardback copy you could get anywhere. However, if you ordered from Books A Million, then just like with many other Star Wars books, they have a special signed copy. There's a little sticker on the cover that says signed copy, and inside, bound in in the same place where a poster would be for Barnes & Noble, is a separate page that has Star Wars on it and has a nice little uh, rectangular area sort of carved out 
uh, on the page by its design, and that's where the author will sign it. So there was a signed copy, signed by author Christy Golden, available through Books A Million. I did check the other day just to kind of see if there were any other signed copies of anything Star Wars available on the Books A Million website, and as of that day, all of the different ones are all sold out, including Inferno Squad. So if you're looking for that one, best bet is eBay or somewhere like that at this point. Um, There's also a Barnes & Noble exclusive version that is marketed as a special edition. That one has sort of a bound-in poster, but this time it's a little bit different. Instead of it being a poster that is somehow inspired by the book, the poster art is actually the art of the cover, because the cover is a wraparound uh, dust jacket, so it's all one big image. It's that image without any words or anything on it. They call it virgin art in in comics. And then if you flip it over... It's sort of a black and white or grayscale version of the same thing with all these different notes that were put on it by people um, to give feedback so that it could be fixed and updated into its final version. So sort of the markup of it. Uh, And then if you went to San Diego Comic-Con or are fortunate like me and know somebody who did, thank you very much, Barrent, then there is a San Diego Comic-Con exclusive version that looks nothing like the others. Uh, The San Diego Comic-Con exclusive version is sort of what approach, I'm opening it here, it's sort of like the approach they took to Thrawn. So you've got your book itself that is black with red lettering as the lettering on the spine. So it looks the same in that sense from the side as it would if you got the regular version or any of the other versions. But there's an Inferno Squad symbol embossed on the cover. So it's kind of indented on the cover. You open it up, and the first sort of binding page has a different design. So like with Thrawn, it was the Chimera. Here, it's repetition of the Inferno Squad sign against a red background. Oh, cool. Then uh, it does, of course, have its own dust jacket, which has one of the Inferno Squad pilots uh, or trooper helmets shown on the front. And uh, you kind of pull it around to the back and you're seeing bits and pieces of the rest of that image. Uh, it says the same thing on the back, though. But that back area, basically, it's it's the cover art of the game, more oh, or less, okay. of the game's cover. Um, that bluish trooper helmet or pilot helmet. And then also, though, unlike what they did with Thrawn, where it was just a regular copy of the book otherwise in terms of its interior, this one actually has that signing page, like the Barnes or the Books A Million version, stuck inside it. And it came automatically signed, already signed. So whereas with um, the Thrawn novel, if you got the exclusive version at Celebration Orlando, you had to then take it to get signed if you wanted it signed. In the case of this one at San Diego Comic-Con, you just bought it, it was already signed, and the only reason you need to go to a signing is if you wanted to get it personalized rather than just signed. Now, they are doing an exclusive version, and boy, this is causing me to... This is what's going to probably decide whether or not I, I continue following any of the variant copies of novels because it's just, it gets an expensive proposition where they're all like 30 bucks a pop. Yeah. But at New York comic con, they are releasing a special New York comic con exclusive version of from a certain point of view that has a different dust jacket and everything to it. That one, because it has 40 different authors is not signed by anyone up front. If you wanted it signed, you'd have to take it to the individual authors and some of them will be at the con. Some of them will not. So it's still that their approach continues to differ every time they do one of these exclusives in some form, but the exclusives for specific events are continuing. And that's what kind of drives me nuts because it means you have to either ask a friend and kind of put somebody else out to, to hunt it down for you if possible, or you wind up having to go on eBay and pay exorbitant prices afterwards. And in this case, what they're doing for from a certain point of view, um, you have to go and get a wristband and go, and that wristband entitles you to go to pick one up 
at a specific time on a specific day. And if you don't pick it up, then you're out of luck. You have to get another wristband. Um, and when you go, it is limited to purchasing one. So they're putting new restrictions on how it's done. Though whether that's a matter of just it's because of the, the convention and its own approach, or if it's a matter of them constantly refining the approach to how to get these on Del Rey's part, that I can't say. Um, but suffice to say, the exclusives continue, and it is one really nice-looking Inferno Squad if you got the San Diego Comic-Con copy. But really, it's just like throwing. None of the actual content is different, and you could easily have gotten a signed copy by just going to Books A Million if that was what you were concerned about, which is mainly what I was concerned about. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I was thinking about with this book is the potential for tie-in with the video game and how Battlefront 1 could have tied in. You know, uh, Battlefront 1 didn't have the story mode, so there was no real direct through line for these characters, whereas this one, you know, we've already seen uh, release videos for Battlefront 2 where Aiden's there. I mean, you know, she's there talking with her dad. Uh, we get to see her get to meet the Sentinel droid when it shows up there to talk to her dad. So, so I like the fact that this one is going to tie in a lot better and we're going to see the character more. So that's one of those angles that is going to be exciting because we didn't have that with the other one and it was definitely something I thought we should do. Another thing too is I like the idea that I, I kept thinking this was Inferno Squadron and then it, it came down to it's Inferno Squad and we're talking four people, you know, not 12, not nine. You know, it's a, it's a much smaller individual group. This is more like Republic Commando, you know, the way that Delta Squad and, and Null Squad and Omega Squad were to function, you know, four people coming together, the best of the best. And it also had that Wraith Squadron feel of each one of them had a specific subset in their skills. So, you know, they really worked well together in that regard. I really got a kick out of that aspect of this book. Uh, Nate, you had, you had mentioned at the beginning here about how it's, it's an interesting perspective. And I found myself conflicted a lot because, you know, I'm used to being on the rebels point of view when I'm reading these books. And now here we are, we're with someone who not just is working for the empire, but truly believes it. I mean, there are moments where they're working with the rebel cells that they've infiltrated. And if it would have been almost anyone else, and even the way it's written sometimes, where you're almost like, are they starting to kind of fall towards the rebel side? But with the main character, Aiden, it was really hard to believe that she would be even open to it because of how convicted she was in her beliefs that the Empire was doing right. Uh, So... I found myself often conflicted with with every time she would shoot down a rebel pilot or anything. So the fact that they kind of went gunning for Saw's partisan group kind of gave me that out because Saw's group, in a sense, are kind of like terrorists in their own right. Like even the regular rebels are like, I don't know about you guys. You guys are a little extreme for my taste. Like, did you get that vibe at all, man? Yeah, this is another one that does a really good job of that moral ambiguity, right? So the characters we're supposed to be rooting for are Imperials this time, and these are not... You know, the typical wishy-washy Imperial that we see whenever we get an Imperial story, uh, which you see sometimes in From a Certain Point of View, where it's just like, oh, well, these are good people who are trying to do the right thing, and they're serving the Empire. So, of course, by the end of the story, they're questioning everything and might as well become rebels or may have become rebels. That tended to be the storytelling trope that we would see over and over again in Legends, and even to some degree now, when it comes to this idea of let's show an Imperial perspective. I mean, it's friggin' callous in... Rebels, right? There's an episode called The Imperial Perspective. Yeah, through and Imperial it's, Eyes, yeah. It's, yeah, through Imperial Eyes, yeah. And it's basically, it's basically callous and reasons for him to turn to be a rebel. You know, that's, that's not exactly actually showing a dyed-in-the-wool Imperial sticking to Imperial ideals, whereas this, for the most part, does. And it's cool because it gives you that sense of, 
Now, what is a regular soldier for the Empire or a regular soldier who's been brainwashed in the Empire? What, how do they feel about this? What individuality do they have in terms of serving the Empire? How do they rationalize some of the horrible things that get done? And how do they look at the rebels? Because there's that, there's that common phrase you hear, particularly uh, in history and political science courses these days, because we're in the middle of the war on terrorism, uh, which is this idea that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, right? That, that depending on your tactics, that's what sort of determines how you get labeled. And then beyond that step, you know, you're the extremist. Beyond that step, then, it's just whether people support you or not, whether you're a freedom fighter or a terrorist, you're still an extremist, you're still violent, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's about winning hearts and minds and having to do things differently than that, so you don't really fit either label necessarily. Maybe you're out for freedom, but not a freedom fighter, whatever. So I found it interesting here that this really, I think, makes a really good companion piece to Rebel Rising. Because yeah. Rebel Rising shows us the yeah. inner workings of Saw's group, Saw's partisans, gives us a lot of moral ambiguity in the way that Jin Erso is looking at things, and there are even characters in this that tie, to, to a degree at least, into Rebel Rising. And here yeah. we've got that same moral ambiguity, but now from the Imperial side, sort of trying to understand them. But yeah, I thought this was a really well done book. I thought their way of handling the Imperial side was very realistic. And I like the fact that, frankly, the characters are more human than I would have usually given a Star Wars book credit for when it comes to the Imperials. Usually the Imperials are sketched out in fairly light terms. Or when they're sketched out in detail, it's all about the honor, the duty, not a lot that's personal. Like Ray Sloan, we feel like we know her now, but I still don't feel like there's a lot of her personal opinions, her personal life, her personal traits that we really know all that well. Yeah, It's more her professional position and her view on that that we seem to know about her here. You know, we know about Aiden's family. There's a really gut-wrenching aspect to Aiden's family I want to talk about later yeah. that, that struck me. And it's just a very human character and a human family dynamic that happens to be imperial. Um, it's the kind of thing you don't usually see. Like, you don't see history books that are like, a day in the life of a German Nazi soldier of World War II. Doesn't he love his family so much before he goes out and tries to slaughter the innocent? You don't see that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, because that would be very politically unpalatable. But it existed in some form because they were human beings, even if they were doing inhuman things. And here we get to see that from a Star Wars perspective in a way that I don't think we've really gotten a chance to see before. It's a perfect point-counterpoint to Rebel Rising. They weren't meant to play off each other except for maybe a couple of the characters. But if you've read Rebel Rising, you definitely should read this and vice versa because they are such complementary pieces of work, intended or not. Mm -hmm. Well, I, and I know this is a spoiler-free zone, but I'm going to give you a minor spoiler. It doesn't really tie with much, but it's to give you an example of what Nate's pointing out. And it's about torture. Uh, from Aiden's point of view, they're about to torture one of the individuals from the group. And it says, now at the end, he was finally behaving like an Imperial, she thought. A sort of energy went through those gathered. They knew what that meant. Aiden did, too. She'd seen reports about what partisans did for information. The Empire performed torture as well from time to time as necessary, but it was more elegant. It caused pain without damage. Well, physical damage, at least. The Dreamers would not be so sculptorless. I thought that was interesting because, you know, we, we have, we've seen Darth Vader torture Han and stuff. And, and, and she said, you know, it doesn't leave physical damage. And I stopped and I was thinking about that. And I'm like, you know, in the canon, if you're just taking just the films and stuff, you know, take everything else that we've learned in books and comics away. And in the films, she's right. We, we don't really watch them torture anybody aside from just, you know, it's applying pain to him. Han come back perfectly physical. He was weak as hell, but he was 
physically fine. Yeah, but some somewhere out there, Sinjir Rathvelis is laughing, <laughs> going, <laughs> maybe you don't leave a mark. <laughs> well played. Okay, yeah. Okay, there is that. Yes, I didn't think that. I didn't take that one into consideration. But yeah, I, I think one of the really cool aspects about this was, was how it felt like Race Squadron. You know, you've got these guys, they're going undercover, and that whole spy mission aspect of it, like, it really got exciting. Um, you know, it, it started out, and it picked up real quick. The pacing was good. And once you get about halfway in, I, I really I had a hard time setting the book down. Um, again, I get back to that little nitpick though. I wish we had the character list. Now there's a character in this they they call uh, the mentor, and I, I understand if they're keeping the list because they're characters like that where you know they don't want to tell the person's real name. But you could put the mentor and put the mentor's age and stuff and his human characteristics, or even keep his his description short. But I really I don't understand why they've taken that away. Even put it in the end of the book. You know, when when there are people like me that that don't have as many opportunities to grab a book and sit down and read, and say you know you get a three hour opportunity on Monday and you get another three hours on Friday, so you get a big chunk of the book read on Monday and you come back on Friday and you're like, oh man, what who was who's half of these characters? I that's what I need that character list for just to refresh my memory, especially when you're when you're talking about their last names like Gideon. That's his first name. You, Gideon this, Gideon that, Gideon this, Gideon that, and then halfway through the book, Iden starts referring to him as Hask, which is also a, it's it's a driving of her character because she grew up with him, and so she stops calling him by his first name, and he stops calling her by her first name, and she, he, she starts getting called by her rank, and she starts calling him by his last name, and that's something that, that kind of grows with their perspective as well. So, I don't know, for me, it was like one of those aspects of seeing that come to light, and watching how that played out, and watching the characters do their ins and outs and stuff, like I need that character list, because I get lost as I'm going along, especially when you have that kind of really good writing, and Christy Golden has become one of my favorite writers. I mean, her and Claudia Gray are, are definitely like the the Stackpole and the Zahn and the Alston of the new canon. Like, I am really mm-hmm. getting kick out of all their books. Yeah, it's fantastic work, and it's one of these things that have you sit back and say, wow, you know, imagine you know, imagine if Christy Golden had been really sort of set loose on a story of her own without having to coordinate with somebody else in Legends, you mm-hmm. know, as opposed to being part of one of those longer series. Um, now, I must say, though, I am a little bit shocked at you, Mark. Mm. Um, I'm going to play Chuck Wendig here and say, I can't believe you. You must be a homophobe because when talking about torture, you didn't take Sinjir into account. Homophobe! Homophobe! <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, I will not continue to channel Chuck Wendig, though, because I like to speak in complete sentences. So, um, <laughs> the other thing I would note here is that I think the dedication is interesting, and, and, and I think this is non-spoilery, but at the same time, it's going to lead to sort of a question hanging in people's minds. And I think anybody who's been following the game and its development and then read the book is going to think the same thing. That's why I think it's not a spoiler unless we spoil exactly what happens, uh, or doesn't happen as the case may be. But they talk about this book being dedicated to the real Inferno Squad. T.J. Ramini, who plays Del Miko, Paul Blackthorne, who I know mostly as Detective Lance uh, in the Arrowverse, or as uh, Harry Dresden in the Dresden Files TV series. It's so much worse than the awesome books. Because he plays Gideon Hask, and then Janita Gavinkar, who's been all over the place publicity-wise talking about the game, who actually does the voice uh, and the motion capture for Aiden Versio. And it's interesting to me that, A, we have one of the unique instances here of having a book in which even characters who are new to us have sort of a pre-made visual we can see in our minds because we know what these characters look like in terms of their actors and actresses, but also we know what they look like because they've done enough pre-footage of the game to show us those characters in action to some degree. Like Paul Blackthorne's Gideon Hask looks a lot younger than the Paul Blackthorne we know from Arrow, 
but still, it's Paul Blackthorne. You can tell by the facial structure. But one thing about this book that had me going, hmm, is as you mentioned, there are four members of Inferno Squad. Yeah. There are three members of Inferno Squad named in the dedication and that have been shown as part of the Inferno Squad that we see in Battlefront 2. So immediately when they introduce a fourth member of that team, I'm thinking, "Uh uh-oh, either something's got to happen to this character or this character's going to have to find some other assignment or go their separate ways. So maybe they show up in a cameo in the game, but not a main character in the game because they haven't been listed as one of the three main characters of the game in Inferno Squad. I kind of feel like the publicity for for the game to some degree, was spoiling a little bit of at least expecting that character to somehow be out of the picture when we finally got to the end of this book. Kind of similar to, you know, when gone am I the last of the Jedi, will you be? Okay, well then where are Kanan and Ezra by the time of the original trilogy? That type of thing, where it's not telling you an exact fate of a character, but it sort of tells you somebody's going to have to be shuffled off the board For the game to continue because the game in its later stages doesn't include that character, at least as we know of yet. Ah. So there was a part of me that would sit back saying, I kind of wish I hadn't been following, you know, the the Battlefront stuff as close as I have been for Cloud City Casino when we talk about it on that podcast. Because I felt like I was always waiting for the other shoe to drop for that fourth member of the squad. So... Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. I see. I miss that, and I I was coming from a different angle, thinking of you know we just got all that information about the game, and you know we know it's got a one player story mode. And I'm like, why one? Why limit yourself to one player? You've got a squad of four people. You can play a multiplayer up to four people, like or at least two. Like like Battlefront to the original Battlefront two on Xbox. Like you were able to play two player in the story mode. Why? That was something that that bothered me and. I don't know, like, I, I didn't catch that, but now that you point that out, it's like, oh, that's, yeah, that's a lot more obvious when you've actually finished the book and go back. Like, oh. Oh, yes. Uh, and by the way, folks, by the time this episode comes out, we should be probably in the middle of or right near the end of the open beta. Or not the open beta, the uh, the beta, I guess it isn't open beta, the beta for Battlefront 2. You get access to it uh, early if you bought or if you pre-ordered the game, but you also have access to it. I think it's just an open beta a couple days after that. And then, of course, the game itself comes out in November. So we're getting very close to the launch of the game, and by the time you listen to this, you may have had a chance to actually play around a little bit with the game, though they haven't really told much about what would be in the beta. So we don't know yet if there's any story content in the beta, or if the beta will be primarily multiplayer as sort of a stress test for the servers. Um, We just don't know yet, but of course, for more Battlefront 2 stuff, check out Cloud City Casino, which I host with Michael Morris, and of course, we'll be circling back around to talk about Battlefront 2 also on this show because it's a video game which makes it beyond the films. As if we stick to that anyway. We talk about the movies too. That's right. Our fandom lies beyond the films. We've analyzed their attacks, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of all ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. Now, before we get any further, though, we'd like to talk to you about this week's sponsor, Tops. Voyage across the Star Wars galaxy with Tops in an all-new trading card collection. Tops, Journey to Star Wars, The Last Jedi. 
They have got 110 base storyline cards to take you on a journey across the Star Wars saga with a sneak peek at Star Wars The Last Jedi. You can collect stickers. They've got character cards, illustrated cards, and more, of course. Tops, they've got pretty much all of it. The Last Jedi product includes autographs from over 30 actors and characters. Pick up your trading cards by visiting tops.com today, of course. You can also check out the Star Wars Card Trader app. You can collect and trade over 1,000 officially licensed Star Wars digital cards. That includes replicas of the original Star Wars 77 set of Topps cards. You can also get the all-new trading cards with exciting digital twists. Ooh, digital twists. Now, I, I don't know about you, Nate, but I've done the Card Trader app before, and this definitely sounds like a reason to get back into doing it. I haven't done the Card Trader app, but I used to collect the cards sort of back in the day, and I gotta be honest, what intrigues me about the cards now, and this is something that my wife has gotten into with sports cards, is all those special chase cards. I mean, we're talking about so many different types of cards, whether it's signed cards or otherwise. I mean, you know, those costume cards and things like that, depending on the card set you're looking at. Card collecting has come a long way since back in the day when I used to collect, and I'm always sort of on the edge of wanting to pick up more. And now that it's happening with Star Wars with all these special chase cards, it's it's about as tempting as I've ever seen trading cards become for me. Yeah, I got a couple sets of these sent with us. Riley sent me some over, and I opened one last night. And got the uh, Executioner Stormtrooper card. Looks really cool. It's got a really cool background and stuff. And, you know, like, this is one of those things, like, if you're into finding out all the little things, as many little things as you can, like, right now, that's not generally something I do as I get closer to the Star Wars film, because I've got the Star Wars report and all those different news stuff giving me that. But this is definitely the way to go if you want to get sneak peek at imagery, uh, new cards, new characters, new places, things like that. Tops is the way to go. The Empire's elite strike force takes on a band of rogue rebel warriors in a battle of dangerous secrets and deadly revenge. After the humiliating theft of the Death Star plans and the destruction of the battle station, the Empire is on the defensive, but not for long. In retaliation, the elite Imperial soldiers of Inferno Squad have been called in for the crucial mission of infiltrating and eliminating the Partisans, the rebel faction once led by notorious Republic freedom fighter Saw Gerrera. Following the death of their leader, the Partisans have carried on his extremist legacy, determined to thwart the Empire no matter the cost. Now, Inferno Squad must prove their status as the best of the best and take down the Partisans from within. But the growing threat of being discovered in their enemy's mist turns an already dangerous operation into a do-or-die acid test they dare not fail. To protect and preserve the Empire, what lengths will Inferno Squad go to, and how far beyond them? Bum, bum, bum! So, the general storyline, now, we're not going to go into a heavy summary like we do with the comics, because a novel doesn't really lend itself to that. It would take almost an entire episode. But the short version is that the story starts out, actually, during the Battle of Yavin, we see Aiden as a TIE pilot, and we get a chance to sort of see the Imperial perspective during the battle itself, the anticipation of the destruction of Yavin 4, and the shock when it's the Death Star that winds up being destroyed. And we continue further on from that. It jumps in time a few times, usually only a matter of days or weeks, though. It's not something like uh, the flashbacks in, in Phasma or Thrawn or anything like that. It just jumps a little bit. And we wind up seeing... Inferno Squad formed, and the idea is that they're sort of the cleanup crew. They take care of the things that other groups um, wouldn't because it's too sensitive of a material. So it could be going after stolen Imperial data and trying to keep it quiet. It could be going after a terrorist group and trying to destroy them, particularly in this case, in this book, uh, a group that seems like they're getting some type of stolen Imperial information or leaked Imperial information to help guide their targets. Um, they go after 
and you might find this kind of ironic, corrupt imperials. Not imperials that are, you know, killing people or abusing people, no, but imperials who are taking bribes, imperials who are taking kickbacks, or they're, they're siphoning off some of the tax money for themselves, stuff like that. Corrupt imperials in the eyes of the empire. Um, things like that. They're a cleanup crew. There's only four of them. It's Iden Versio, uh, Del Mico, Gideon Hask, or is it, yeah, Hask, I want to say Hark for some reason, Gideon Hask, and then uh, Sane Marana. Okay, and uh, Gideon is someone who is also a pilot, just like Aiden was. Dell is very good with electronics and tinkering and such. And Sane is actually someone who is in sort of the intelligence and information uh, control type of business and is the youngest member of the team. That also makes it a split between two males and two females on the team, all human. Uh, in the case of Aiden Versio, her father, Garrick Versio, is the one who brings it all together. And we get to know more about her family, whereas she's basically sort of controlled throughout her life and had very strict rules, very high expectations from her father, who is very impersonal to some degree. Whereas she also had a mother, who is uh, Vihei Versio, who is a propaganda artist for the Empire. So both parents believe heavily in the Empire and support it in their own ways. They get the mission after some early missions, they get a mission to basically take down what's left of Saw Gerrera's partisans who have reformed as the so-called Dreamers under Staven, who we met in previous stories like Rebel Rising. Staven is carrying out the missions as the leader, but he's getting information from and sharing leadership to a small degree with a mysterious character known as the Mentor. The Mentor is the one who seems to have the Imperial information that is guiding where the attacks wind up going. Inferno's Although we don't know this at that time. Right. Uh, the team winds up infiltrating the group uh, through various means, winds up becoming part of their rebel activities until eventually uh, turning to take them down, but in the process wind up losing one of their members, who essentially has to be sacrificed when she gives up by accident the fact that she can speak languages that she claimed that she couldn't. They think that she must be an, a, a, a spy within their ranks, which, you know, to be fair, she is. And winds up getting killed, uh, in fact, killed by Aiden, with sort of the, the, the permission of the one being killed, of, you know, protecting the cover for the entire group. We see the group start to become fond of some members of the Dreamers, but then finally eventually taking them down. And the big twist, of course, is the identity of the mentor, as he is revealed by the end of the book to be Lux Bonteri. Yes, Lux from the Clone Wars, uh, who joined Saw's group was away from them for a while, and then eventually sort of combined back together to help form the Dreamers, and was using information from, I believe it was his, it was his stepdaughter? Step, yep, um, stepdaughter. Who works for the Empire, and he was like, well, I want to do this, I want to, I want to turn myself in to an honorable Imperial, so who can I trust and turn myself into? Well, here's a list of some suggested places and people who will be there, to turn yourself into, which becomes the target list. And we are left with sort of the ambiguity at the end, where we think that Aiden has followed her orders, as, or expectations would be that she followed uh, Imperial Protocols, and killed Lux. But it turns out it looks like she actually grew sympathetic enough to him to have let him go, because as one of the other characters noticed, she apparently didn't wind up firing a kill shot at him. So we're left with a little bit of a question of... Uh, not the loyalty of Aiden Versio, but that maybe she's a little more humane than the Empire itself would have expected her 
to be. So it's an intrigue book, a spy novel to some degree, but it's very much about the idea of the realities of war, the realities of terrorism, how deep do you go, as the teaser said, to maintain your cover and so forth, but all told from an imperial perspective that makes this a rather unusual book within Star Wars in general, and in canon in particular. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you mentioned the other character noticing the blaster, and, and that was Del, Miko. Uh, and Del had, an, like, Del and Eden were the two that were having the human reaction of sympathy. You know, like, like he fell for the Chandra fan uh, engineer guy. Well, it didn't like, really and, and, fall for the Chandra. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, by fall for, I mean, that in the aspect of like, he wanted to find, yeah, he wanted to find a way to bring him into the fold for the Empire. He was looking at him like, you know, the Empire has resources. We could help him with the disease he's dying from. We could utilize this guy's brain. This guy, you know, he's he's not full in with the rebel idea of killing to kill. Like, this guy could easily be on the Empire's side. And so he was looking at ways to try to recruit him at one point. And then when everything kind of builds up to the point where it all goes down, he didn't have a chance. And so at that end, when he looks at her blaster, it's like he recognizes that little humanitarian part of himself and her. Like, I don't know. I, I got that vibe out of it. Like, I thought that was a really cool twist that it was Dell and not Gideon that noticed it. Cause like Gideon and Aiden were basically raised together. So they were the two that were really close. They were the ones that, that, they stopped calling each other by the first name and started going more formal as everything went down. And I found the fact that it was, it was Gideon who basically, you know, forced the entire group to be shot. Like that was a a great moment because it explained the differences in the two of them because it starts out like they feel like a, a boy and a girl version of the same self, you know, like, the only difference was that Aiden was raised in, in the Versio family and Gideon was like on the outside the best friend. But by the end of it all, it's like you get the sense that Gideon's more of the the son that Garrick should have had than Aiden because Aiden couldn't go through with it in the end. Like her heart stopped her. Like I thought that was an interesting moment. There were so many things though. Like you know me, I'm always I'm always stopping and grabbing things and putting them down that just makes me think. Like page twenty nine, Admiral Verso, he's talking about something that, that rings true with me as a scout because it's a saying we have in rebel patrol he says if you're early you're on time if you're on time you're late now we have that saying but we say if you're earlier on time if you're on time you're late if you're late that's uh unacceptable and so it's just like one of those things when i saw that i was like oh my god i, I took it to my son i'm like you gotta check this out i love the mission statement you know when he actually breaks it down your mission will be to recover information artifacts or individuals that could prove harmful to the empire if they fall into the wrong hands or if perchance such information has already fallen into the wrong hands, you'll be cleaning things up. As it were, we just bore witness to the level of damage that can be inflicted upon our empire when such pivotal information is used against us. We cannot, must not, shall not allow this to happen ever again. Is it understood? And when we get to the end, too, it's like, you know, they are the cleanup. Like, that's that's the goal. And it becomes that issue between Aiden and Gideon as to how do they go about it, because they were seeking out who the leak was. And until they found that out, and that was literally like the last thing they found out. But once they found that out, she's like, we can go. And Gideon's like, no, we were also, we're supposed to shut this cell down. And in her opinion, by stopping the leak, they had shut the cell down. There was nothing more they can do. But for Gideon, it was like, as long as they're alive, they're a threat. And I thought that that was, you know, Gideon's outlook is exactly what I expected from the Imperial side of things. So that's where I kept coming back to the aspect of is like, could we see Aiden eventually just finally kind of pulling the the hood off and seeing the Empire for what it really is? Or is she going to throughout the, the 
course of the game be more like Gideon and less like Dell. I think that that divergence is handled very well between those two characters. I mean, really, the other members of the squad get heavy characterization, but the one who gets the most, of course, is Aiden. She's the main character of the book. She's the main character of story mode in the game. And I find it interesting that it's sort of as the paranoia grows, I mean, there's an isolation to begin with, right? So they infiltrate the group. We're going to talk about the different infiltration methods, but they get inside the group. And at first, of course, they can't let it be known that they even know each other because that would be suspicious. It takes a while for them to be able to reconnect. So that breeds sort of uh, a wanting to reconnect and a sense of isolation. Once they do reconnect, it's good for a bit. But as circumstances continue to grow and kind of change, you see this sort of wall forming between some members of the group in terms of uh, uh, and, and what they were willing to share with each other and what they were keeping to themselves. And slowly but surely, we wind up with that deviation that winds up again, as he said, with the, the way they refer to each other changing. And you can sort of see that happening in real life, in real relationships. So to see it happen here and happen fairly naturally, but be called out as it happens, as Aiden realizes they're calling themselves different things, I think that's a very human moment. Christy Golden did a really good job of taking these characters and making them human. Um, the other place where I think that that is incredibly powerful in terms of the humanity is with Aiden's family. Because mm-hmm. you've got this overbearing, strict father who has these these ideals of what a an imperial should be and what his child is going to grow up to be within the Empire, not giving special treatment to his child and so forth, and where she always feels like she has to live up to him, that maybe she's never going to be good enough, Mm -hmm. and is always aspiring to get any kind of praise from him, and points out how he hardly ever dishes out praise, and when he dishes out any praise to anybody other than her, there's almost a jealous streak that hits because she hasn't gotten the praise, Mm -hmm. particularly when it's Gideon because of how close they are. But as we go along, we learn more about her family and learn that her mother, um, who again is also pro-imperial but is an artist, is dying. She's been ill. And so in essence, part of the story becomes almost a race against time because Aiden's, when she goes undercover, we'll talk about the different undercover methods, but short version of hers is basically that she has to appear to be someone who is an imperial who is starting to speak out against imperial policies and things that she sees as not right, as if a, a rebel sympathizer. And instead of getting killed or anything because she's Versio's daughter, she winds up basically getting shunted back uh, to the world that she trained on and whatnot, and then gets taken away by a member of the Dreamers, supposedly to become the new public face of the Dreamers, an imperial who is speaking out against the Empire, which could have an impact on how people see the fight. And to do that, though, it all has to be believable. Only members of the squad and people who are essential to that mission have any idea that what she's doing is actually fake. Yeah. So her mother is brokenhearted and believes that she really has turned on the empire that her parents love so much. And you got these moments where she's getting messages from her mother and it's sort of breaking her heart. She doesn't know what to do because she can't tell her mother the truth. And by the end of the book, we find that by the time the mission is over, her mother has died. Yeah, that was rough. And it's that was probably one of the most emotionally taxing moments in any Star Wars book outside of, say, Lost Stars that I've run into in a long time. Mm-hmm. And we have this moment where we find out that, in a sense, Garrick Versio is more human than we gave him credit for, because when the time comes and she's dealing with the fact that she feels as though her mother probably died thinking she was a traitor, her father lets her know quietly that no, she didn't, which which must mean that he told her he broke the rules to make sure that his wife 
on her deathbed, knew that their daughter was not a traitor to the Empire. Which, granted, you know, we're like, oh, so she's not a traitor, so she's one of the bad guys. That's the immediate, you know, kind of big picture Star Wars knee-jerk reaction. But from a human standpoint, that's an incredibly powerful moment. And... Again, it's a, just a very human thing to see. It's, it's so often that we see stories that tell sci-fi tales, particularly uh, big, you know, sprawling sci-fi sagas, where it seems all about what happens and moving the plot from point A to point B. And a lot of times the humanity of the characters gets lost in the shuffle or it's very surface level. They've got these quirks that make them human. But what about the relationships and the emotional stuff that they go through? A lot of time that is given short shrift. Yeah. And here they're managing to do that very well. And in a book that's also it feels natural for those types of things to be included. And it's not a first person book. Yeah, absolutely. And it, yet it still feels like a very natural read when those things are going on. So, again, kudos to Christy Golden for really bringing that humanity out in these characters. It makes me feel like I almost I can pretty much guarantee you that I'm going to have a Stover effect when I play Battlefront 2. Oh, yeah. I am going to care for these characters in a way that I absolutely would not have had I not read this book. Yeah. Now, question for you over that, the whole telling mom angle with dad. Do you think, because, so so for perspective for you listeners out there, there's a moment where mom leaves the family, and dad and her, like, I think she's like five, maybe six, and dad's all like, well, she was only a Versio in name only. Unlike you and me, we are true Versios. And, and that's like a prominent theme as well. So when dad does it, do you think, does dad do it for himself to tell his wife, or does he do it for his wife so she won't die of a broken heart, or, and this is the one I think, did he do it for his daughter because his daughter is such a true Imperial? Oh, I would say probably for his daughter, because, yeah, they had been separated for a while. Um, I guess it's not really wife. I guess it's more like ex-wife. But this idea that he would do it for her, I mean, there may still be some love there, perhaps. But I would say probably more than anything, it was to make sure that that it was for Aiden. But I think at the same time, there doesn't even have to be a reason in terms of which person he was trying to protect so much as it was the right thing to do. So, Because this is a guy who is being driven by what he believes is the right thing to do. Granted, what he's doing in most cases perpetuates the Empire and turns out bad for the galaxy. But like the best villains, he believes that what he's doing is right. So I can see that just fitting within his mindset of this is the right thing to do and not necessarily being out of character for him to just do it, even though we think of him as the big bad of the book, when really in a lot of ways... At least to his mind and the mind of Aiden and Gideon and so forth, he's not. Instead, he's more like the paternal figure of the book, literally in some cases. Now, there was another one that jumped out to me. It was on page uh, 135. They're talking about the Rebel Alliance. And uh, who is she talking to here? I th- oh, Azen. And Azen's an interesting character because Azen's the one that picks her up. And we later find out he's like a double agent working for the Empire or might not be anymore, uh, which also takes an interesting turn. But at this moment, she goes, you're with the Rebel Alliance. He made a face as if he'd just been bitten into something extremely sour. Hell no. Until they got up the nerve and stole those plans from Scarif, I'd have said the Alliance would rather meet with the Emperor for tea and politely ask him to consider surrendering if it wouldn't bother him too terribly much. And I thought it was interesting because like they talk about the rebel Alliance as being, you know, this group that doesn't always take action. And yet it's funny because the rebel Alliance gets all the credit for this, but in a sense, it's basically saw's group because it was Jen Urso that got the plans. It was Jen that did all this, that forced the rebel Alliance into action. 
So it's, it's, it, it makes me stop and look at Saw Gerrera more for the first time as the Iblis of Legends. You know, the third mm-hmm. rebel leader that really had a bigger hand in things. And it turns out it's really Saw's group. Like Saw, you know, re- the Rebels show is passing him off as being the extremist. But really, he's the heart of the fight right now. I mean, especially in the Rebels era, it's, it's Saw's group that's doing the damage. The Rebel Alliance isn't even really taken seriously until Jin throws that fuse in. And at that point, Jin has also outed Leia, who is now, you know, like, it's obvious Leia is now one of the leaders. Mon Mothma's already been outed in the Rebels series. So it's like, once that leadership gets up, then the heat gets on to the, re- to the Rebellion. But up until then, the Rebel Alliance was more like an idea that really had no bite. Well, it's interesting because you see that in uh, Leia, Princess of Alderaan. We see... Uh, interaction between Leia and Bale and Bria and Mon Mothma and sort of this slowing realization or this slowing, this uh, slow realization that this is going to be something that is going to come down to a fight. Doing it politically is not going to be possible. I think that's what we see here that Saul kind of from the get-go was like, that's not going to work. But at the same time, you also have the extremism of being willing, as we see in Rebel Rising, to have plenty of, of collateral damage when they carry out these attacks. They're killing Imperials, but they're also killing innocents who happen to be around. Although their argument would be, if you're an Imperial citizen who's not actively fighting the Empire, well, you're the enemy, or you're part of the problem. But it gives you a sense of this group, though, as it goes along, because, one, Saw is gone. So, Staven is sort of trying, as hard as he can, to maintain control of this group. It's part of why he resents the mentor being, or Lux, being the one with the secret Imperial information, because he doesn't have that sort of cult of personality aspect that Saw does. There are members of his team that respect him, but not nearly the way that Saw had that respect from what he had done. So, Staven is always this character, sort of always living in Saw's shadow, and trying to maintain control by the skin of his teeth. So, to that degree, it breeds this defensiveness within him. And we reach a point where, as things start to go wrong, they have an extreme sense of paranoia. Maybe because Saw is dead. Uh, Maybe because they know that the Empire is hunting them even more now, or hunting any rebels even more now because of what happened to the Death Star. But it's the paranoia that winds up playing a role eventually in Sane's death. You have a character who... Uh, infiltrates along with the others. And her infiltration is actually one that I found very realistic. But the fact that they actually use the time to show us this in the book I thought was pretty cool. In her case, she is put in place as if she is a slave um, on a a station that they know has been uh, connected to this dreamer group and winds up, you know, kind of using the sympathies from that to be able to join the group and get pulled in. Whereas um, Gideon and Dell act as brothers who are former, uh, who've been trying to find basically the dreamers and join them who get pulled in whenever they wind up turning on uh, the, the crew that they, uh, that they, so they stowed away. It's, with. it's Lassa Raim, uh, uh, Lassa Rami, and she's a return character right. from, as well. I thought that short, was cool. Yeah. From the short story um, with Asajj Ventress a while back, that was a tie in to dark disciple. Yep. So, you got this idea that she gets pulled into the group, but she has to, probably more than any of the others, she has to create a false identity for herself. Because the brothers can kind of be, the supposed brothers can kind of be themselves as long as they're still acting as brothers. There's not a lot that they need to hide because the skills that they purport to have are the skills that they actually have. Aiden is Aiden. It's the opinion of the Empire that is different than her real self. But Sane comes in and has all these different things she's supposed to keep up with. And she's got this eidetic memory. She's supposed to be able to keep up with all these many uh, different bits of minutia. 
But it just so happens that she has said at one point that she doesn't speak any languages other than such and such. And at one point, she has she has that human frailty of she starts being attracted to a member of the team, uh, one of the other young people who are part of the Dreamers. Uh, and in the process of that, here's uh, there's a point at which um, he is is killed on a mission that basically she is supposed to go and set off an explosive. Uh, and the two of them together are supposed to set off an explosive at this event for young people where there's an imperial speaking and whatnot. And she decides to set the timer later than they intended so that more of the young people could get away and not get caught in the blast. And as a result, he thinks that it just hasn't gone off correctly. Not that it's been yeah, delayed. It's so he dives in and basically blows himself up because they all wear basically uh, what amounts to suicide bomber type apparel um, just in case that the mission doesn't go the way that it's planned. And he winds up killing himself. And then when they hear a con- she hears a conversation in a language she's not supposed to know, she hears a conversation disparaging him and his choices. She speaks out in his defense and they're like, I'm sorry, wait, did you just overhear this in a language you claimed you didn't know? And normally yeah. that would not have been a big deal, but the, the atmosphere of paranoia that gets built around this group and around Staven is palpable throughout. Well, and this is also after they've proven Azen was a spy, right. and they're like, he had to have been working with somebody. So it was like ratcheting it which up. Is interesting, like, oh. Which is interesting because they, they realize they have a leak, and it turns out that you know, you've got this guy who used to be with the Empire, who is supposed to infiltrate the Dreamers, supposedly was unsuccessful, and now has somehow gone back to them. So maybe he's doing it for his purposes. Maybe he's doing it to try to get back in the Empire's good graces. Maybe he's actually turned. There's questions until they finally reveal that, yeah, he basically was trying to use it to get back in the Empire's good graces, and he winds up getting killed. But again, that, that sense of paranoia is there because it's not... We have a leak. Aha, we found the leak. The leak is silenced. We're good to go. No, it's, we have a leak. We silenced the leak. Oh my God, he must have also been working with someone, right? The paranoia stays and grows despite the fact that in theory, they've just cut off what was their problem in the first place. So I think that is something that's very well, it's, it's well played here, but it sort of shows the difference between Saw Gerrera's partisans and the dreamers that come out of it. And the, the regular Rebel Alliance, you don't see that level of extreme paranoia um, mm. within the, the typical Rebel Alliance cells. And that paranoia is probably bred by the same type of emotions that breed their willingness to kill innocents and so forth. Um, it's kind of like Saw Gerrera, like, lies, deceptions, did they send you here to kill me? To kill me? And it's like, <laughs> and, and number one, be careful when you say it like that, because you might wind up with Forrest Whitaker eye. Um, but... <laughs> The thing about it, though, is that, you know, it's been perfect fitting with Saw's group's dynamic, right? It's just one of those things where um, you can see a difference, but there are subtle differences beyond just their tactics. The tactics that play into the emotion, that play into the way that they look at things um, is a big is a big part of it. And it's and it to some extent, it's interesting to see the juxtaposition because here they're looking at them saying, how dare these rebels be willing to have innocence die? in order to carry out their cause. They must be stopped. They are terrorists. But at the same time, we see Aiden struggling with ideas like, well, here's some stormtroopers who may have to die because we have to keep our cover to carry out our mission. In essence, innocent, in her mind at least, Imperials dying for a greater good. And in essence, it's it's kind of the same thing but once again, it goes back to that idea, just like in Rebel Rising. Well, when your side does it, it's okay. When the other side does it, it's a horrible tragedy and must be stopped. It's a great, yeah. 
again, juxtaposition there to see these. That's why I think this is this and Rebel Rising really should be read together mm-hmm. because in essence they're telling sort of a similar moral morally ambiguous story with some of the same moral questions, but from different sides of the conflict. And it provides a great mirror image kind of feel. How'd you like when Staven was looking over at Sin and he was just like, you know, she reminds me of someone who also was a forger. They had similar names. I'm like, oh, that's, that's like, true. Oh, they do. Oh, crap. He's going to yeah. find it as Jin. Sin, Jin. Oh. I will say that there was a point of confusion for me uh, for a while because, or not confusion. It was, it was having me scratch my head because I couldn't quite place it. So very early on, probably about halfway through the book or earlier, I realized the mentor must be Lux. Okay. See, I, I, I had thought maybe. Well, he's connected. He's connected to the Dreamers slash Saw's previous group. And and may I put aside, maybe Dreamers wasn't the best thing to call this group. One because uh, it is putting a happy face on something dark. But then again, that happens a lot in politics. That's why the People's Republic of China isn't a republic in any sense. The you know North Korea calls itself a, a, a democratic republic, but it's not. It's a Democratic People's Republic is about as, as undemocratic, unrepublic as you could possibly be. It's kind of the way that it works in real life sometimes. But it's reading this book and now talking about it. See, it, it's been a few months since this book came out. Now we're talking about it. What has happened in between the controversy over DACA and the Dreamers, the young people brought to the United States uh, as children illegally without their consent because their parents brought them? You probably don't want a book in which, you know, the white army folks are going after the dreamers. Oh, I didn't even think I'm of that. I'm just saying they're babies. I don't know. I didn't even. I thought it was a brilliant name <laughs> because the whole Saw's dream, save the dream, save, you know, the, save, dream. Rebellion, save the dream. Right. I, I thought that. It is. I and, didn't and even think perfect, about that. It works perfectly in the context of it. Then you go, you know what? Real life, stop intruding on my enjoyment of Star <laughs> Wars. Stop it. <laughs> stop it. Leave my Star Wars alone. <laughs> So, so for me, the thing that threw me off is uh, the character Kate. Well, wait, wait, I didn't even uh, tell you what threw me off, though. I f- so I figured out who Lux was. But he's constantly, and, and he talks about having known Stila, so that helped cement it in my mind. But mm-hmm. he constantly talks about his goddaughter, who at, who at one point had a thing for Staven. And I'm like, who is this? Because surely it wasn't Jin, but all the other references you would think would be to Jin, because she's so closely connected to it. Turns out it's Maya. Um, the character who gave, I guess, Jin the gloves or left the gloves to Jin, um, who we meet in Rebel Rising. So if you haven't paid really, oh. really close attention to the side characters in Rebel Rising who were part of, of Saw's group, because Staven was even a part of the group. I think he was the one who taught her how to work on landmines or something um, yeah. or explosives of some kind. But if you weren't paying really close attention to those members of the group back in Rebel Rising... There may be some references here to members of the group, either current or former, that are going to slip right by you. Because it takes a long time before they ever pin down, oh, it was Maya. He wasn't talking about Jin. And all the time I'm scratching my head going, was there a Jin thing? I don't know. Because it kind of would make sense <laughs> that if Saw had a kid he was raising, that of all people, it might be Lux who was asked to be the godfather. So I was thinking maybe Lux was referring to Jin, but then, uh-huh. wait, what? She was hooked up with Staven at some point? That doesn't make sense. Well, it turns out it's not her, but it's not clarified until damn near the end of the novel when they finally reveal that it was Lux and he's able to reveal those connections more clearly. Uh, see, for me, it was it was the angle of the rebellion and the dreamers because, you know, early on, they're like, well, we're not we're not the rebellion. You know, the rebellion, they don't the rebel alliance doesn't do what we're doing. We're fighting. They're not, you know, and then on page 147, Caven says something that took me back. He goes, they hit us hard with Alderaan, but we, the rebel alliance with the help from saw right before he was martyred, hit back by destroying something. The empire values much more than lives. They're 
perception of their own infallibility. And I'm like, wait a minute. Now, now we're the Rebel Alliance? And then they, they further go on and tell you that Cave has only been with the Dreamers for five missions. So I'm like, was he like a member of the Rebel Alliance proper that came over? Like, they never really explained that. And it really threw me off because I'm like, so are 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 they are the dreamers part of the rebel alliance more formally than they were as partisans? Like, what the hell is going on? Well, it's, it's you know taking credit where you can, right? You know whether oh. whether you had any part in it. If you can be tangentially associated with it, well, we did it, right? Um, you see that in politics all the time. One party puts forth a bill, the bill goes through, it turns out to be popular. The other party says, yes, we worked in a bipartisan way. Well, all but like one of you voted against it. Yeah, but see that one that voted for it, that means our party was involved too. Bullcrap! But I, I think it's interesting here looking at these, these, these groups and what the quote that you just brought up there. What's important here, I think a lot of times gets overlooked when it comes to the Death Star. It's not just the Death Star as a weapon is gone. And that it's essentially, you know, that the Empire has to strike back um, as a result of that, and it's sort of this public defeat. It's the fact that the public defeat was all about sort of shattering that infallibility. Um, that between, because Scarif wasn't known to people, right? Uh, this was, this became known. So what you have here is the Rebels' supposed first victory as a large alliance, which was Scarif. Then you've got this, where the Death Star's been destroyed, and sure enough, immediately afterwards, that air of infallibility is starting to crack, and they have to come in and try to fix it. It reminds me in a lot of ways of, uh, to, to pull a history lesson here, of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. Why were people like Martin Luther gone after so hard by the Catholic Church? Well, because they were questioning the Church's authority, and the idea at the time was that the church's teachings would have to be infallible by definition. Mm. Um, so anytime you see it's something that is perceived as infallible, starting to have cracks in that infallibility, they have to crack down. They have to go after those who might have caused that or, or to find ways to basically squelch it. It doesn't change the fact that you've just been proven fallible. It's like, oh, yeah, we were fallible. Mm. But we still killed them. See, see, like, yeah, but you still. Yeah. What about that Death Star that just blew up? You know, so mm -hmm. I find it interesting that they talk about sort of the psychology to some degree, not in a large degree, but you get the psychology of the empire as a whole addressed a couple times within the book, like uh, in that particular instance. Now, mm -hmm. a couple things that, that stood out beyond that one, I think it is cool that we find that they have a ship of their own called the Corvus, which is an Imperial Raider. For those of you who are not aware, an Imperial Raider-class Corvette was actually something that was invented for the X-Wing miniatures game because they needed yeah. a ship to be able to be the equivalent of a CR-90 Corellian Corvette. So they create it for that. It wound up showing up also in Armada. It's going to be in the Battlefront video game, and it shows up here in nice. this book. Um, but beyond that, I want to get into this whole idea of Lux as the mentor. Um, because it's cool and it's interesting to see sort of a, a fate for Lux to some degree, because it looks like she let him go. Um, but see what happened to Lux later and that sort of thing. But there's a part of me that wonders if Lux would actually have been willing to go along with this at this point um, because of the way that he he changed in a lot of ways. He was willing to fight alongside Stila and Saw because they were fighting to liberate their, liberate their home and so forth, um, but never seemed to go super bloodthirsty or anything. That was more like whenever he was thinking of joining the Mandalorians or joining Death Watch and wound up choosing not to, thanks in part to Ahsoka Tano. So the fact that he is sort of the more pacifistic or more peaceful equivalent or, or balancing point for Staven works great as sort of a character foil. 
there's a part of me that wonders, would he really have come back to this? Um, and I kind of wish that we had gotten more of a background on him before the big revelations at the end. Like if we had known more about why he decided that it was willing to, he was willing to fight, and instead of joint going with the regular Rebel Alliance, he was willing to go along with this particular specific group. Um, granted, he may not have known exactly what was going to happen with the information that he provided, but surely he would have known that if he had gone to the regular Rebel Alliance and provided it, they might have used it in a way that limited casualties relative to what we wound up seeing here with what the Dreamers or Saw's partisans would have done with it. Um, I wish we could have known more, but it, the more that we would have known, the more it would have perhaps shed light on and revealed the identity of the mentor earlier in the book than it was supposed to. I wonder what percentage of the audience was actually surprised when it was revealed that it was Lux Bonteri. Because I don't think very many people in the audience who also watched The Clone Wars would have actually still been wondering by the time it's revealed. And if that's the case, does that mean, since we already would have known, that they missed some opportunities to provide more on why he fights the way that he does, why he's with this group of all groups, why he reconstitutes, he because he was part of bringing his group together in the first place, why he's okay with yeah. the things that Staven is doing rather than walking away, um... That, that we just didn't get told because they were holding it all for these revelations at the end. See, and I was wondering if it had anything to do with Ahsoka as Fulcrum. You know, like maybe he ran into her somewhere along the line and, and thought that it'd be better if he stayed away from her or something like that. I mean, that was definitely something that, that jumped up. But I think one of the cool aspects that I hadn't thought about until this book was the fact that, you know, this goes all the way back to Saw and Stila and Anakin and Ahsoka teaching them. And the fact is that Saw's whole group like everything they got they got it from anakin and ahsoka like they taught them how to be rebels like that was a cool tie-in because when you think about those episodes like yeah it was a cool moment to see you know yeah they were teaching some rebels and stuff but to find out that that group became such a thorn in the empire's side it's like oh that's awesome and they said dave filoni always said that it's the beginning of in essence the rebels is what we're seeing with what was happening on onderon so Kind of a shock that it wound mm -hmm. up playing out quite so specifically true rather than being just sort of generalized true. Now, another thing I really liked, you mentioned Staven, you know, a few times now, is when we see Gideon start to actually get into his good graces. Uh, I want to say it's around page 175 or so that Staven actually lets Gideon take a test flight to see what he can do. And Gideon doesn't waste it. Like, I mean, he blazes out. He's like, all right, here we go. Bam! They're just launching out, hitting trees and stuff. And Staven's like, what are you doing? He's like, well, if we were in pursuit, this would be how I get away. Like, Everything about it is like, this is my one shot to get in good. And he does. And and then they use that to start doing the divide and conquer. And the way that they're able to do this, okay, so they can't communicate because, like Nate said, they all get there in different ways. But Dell, because he's got his droid, he's been sending his droid out, getting people familiarized with the droid so they don't question the droid being around. And eventually, he starts having the droid take their communicators and... He'll put it inside of himself and then rebuild it where it's got one communicator button. When it comes out, it's now got two, a direct line to all their units. And that was really cool because it allowed them to start communicating. But when we get towards the end and we get to that point where sin dies and I'm thinking, what about our communicator? You know, like, like what if somebody notices that, that it's got a second button or the fact that when they're calling each other, like what if it starts chiming up? Like I was wondering if like that was going to be one of those things. And that's when I, I noticed that ID-10 also kind of disappeared. Like, those were two things that I was like, I kept thinking as we got closer to the end that they were going to get caught. And and when we have that moment where Sin gets caught, I'm like, oh, my God. And then I kept thinking, it's going to happen even more. Like, they're all going to get it. Like, the moment when Azen gets outed was an intense moment because 
Staven, when he figures out something's going on, he puts them all, like, uh, uh, Gideon gets put under gun, Aiden gets put under gun, and Azen gets put under gun, and then they all come out, and he's got them on their knees, and you're like, oh my god, they're gonna kill all of them, like, <laughs> this is getting bad, like, his paranoia goes to such a level where I'm just like, holy crap, they're all gonna die, so when we get to the moment later with Sin, I'm like, thinking, they're coming back to this, like, they're getting sloppy here now that she's dead, but I don't know. There were so many really cool moments when, when that happened, when you get to that moment where here's the line, somebody's about to die. And when we get to that moment with Sin, I like the fact that Aiden, like, she's thinking outside the box. She's like, okay, there's six of them. There's four of us. We could take them out in three. So she's, like, trying to look at her group and get that plan across to them all. And she turns away from Sin, and she's looking over towards Gideon and Dell. And she, she notices somebody moving, and she thinks it's the Partisans. And when she turns around, she realizes it's Sin. Sin's basically jumping onto the knife. And it was it was like, she does it, but she didn't mean to do it. So like as it's happening, then she commits to it. And you see this silent O on Sin's face, and she's like, yes. And then she's like, for the Empire! You're like, oh, like Sin forces her hand. And that was a really cool moment in and of itself, because you'd already had that other moment with Aiden, and now this one. And like, this is the moment where, for... for uh, Steven, this is where his doubt for Aiden kind of evaporates. And it, it was it was just well done. Like I, I don't know if Golden had that plan from the very beginning, like how you said with the introduction, because you know, the character's dead after this, they have to replace her, which also gets that angle at the end of the book. I was kind of hoping like we'd see the replacement. So now I'm really hoping that that's something that the story mode for the game kicks in. Like maybe, you know, maybe we're not Aiden, maybe we're the the fourth new member or something, you know, like that's something that I, I find equally interesting as well the whole perplexity of these type of missions i mean going back to race squadron this is what i love about these type of books like the the going undercover the whole mission angle the fact that we saw so many missions go down like i don't know for me that was that was a lot of fun and then they go their separate ways before coming back together so waiting for that moment when Dell's able to get them their communicators, when uh, uh sin gets the information she she needs and she's like i got something to tell you you know like I was on the edge of my seat through all of that. Well, I'd say two things. I think these are the only two things left in my notes, really, um, to point out. And you brought up both of them in some form in what you were just saying there. One, uh, I will say that I, I think that that helped. What happened with saying helped to prove Aiden's loyalties to Staven. But what really seems to do it, the moment, the conversation they have that seems to finally dispel his doubts, is another of those very human moments because he's like, kind of like, you know, I don't trust you. Why would someone who is a loyal Imperial wind up turning against the Empire? I, he essentially doesn't believe in her change of heart. And she finally basically is able to say, and it has a lot more truth to it than, you know, she probably would have meant it to have was, you know, my father loves the Empire. He was an ass. He treated me like crap and I never felt special. So you know what? Yeah. I'm going to destroy something he loves. It, I don't give a crap about the rebellion. I don't give a crap about taking down the Empire. I give a crap about hurting what my father loves. And there's enough truth, you know, to the way that she was raised in that to wonder how much of that was the real bitterness coming through. But he's just like, oh, well, I can totally understand that. That's cool. You're in. You're good. <laughs> you know, it's kind of one of those, you know, he's so familiar with the dark, resentful emotions that he's willing to buy. He's not willing to buy that somebody has a change of heart because of idealism, but he's absolutely willing to buy that somebody has a change of heart because of a personal animosity with someone. Um, with Sane, I think also there are these moments that kind of give you a sense into more Staven's mind than even hers. One, I do think that 
that because she was the one who set the timer the way that she did, because in essence, that's why um, Cave wound up killing himself, um, going in as a suicide bomber, essentially. I think that she felt that guilt, and we're going to see something similar happen to a character known by Leia Organa in Leia, Princess of Alderaan, one of the many friends that she has in that book. Um, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that because there's no way to tell which friend it is because there are several friends she makes in the book. Um, Mm -hmm. And with Leia, she's someone who, when she does something that inadvertently results in the death of someone who is a friend of hers, she's able to still carry on and has the fortitude to do so. With Sane, it just eats away at her throughout the rest of the book after that point. To the point where she admits to having set the timer early. And that is what causes the original questioning of, are you an Imperial? And turns the attention on her that eventually winds up with her being caught. That she showed that humanity. But it eats at her and eats at her because she was starting to feel for that character. Um, She's not as strong as, say, Leia would be in a similar situation. Despite the fact that she is this character who is supposed to be this strong Imperial soldier. Um, but I think it's funny, and, and again, insight into Staven more than insight into Sane, that here's Sane, who is an Imperial, who is wanting to let people live, so she sets the timer late. And as soon as they discover that she purposely set it late, the question asked of her by Staven is, are you an Imperial? How far gone as a freedom fighter do you have to be that the idea of saving innocent lives is something only the enemy would do? That it automatically makes you the bad guy. You were going to try to save innocent lives. You're not one of us. What does that say about you? And again, mm-hmm. it's this idea that we get to learn a lot more about the partisans and their ideals through what they're willing and unwilling to do in some of these actions than having to necessarily be told about it. I mean, we're told that they're willing to do these extreme things. But we see a lot more and get a lot better feel for that in the actions of these characters. Are you an Imperial? How dare you try to save innocent lives? How effed up is that statement? Yeah, no, that's around 235 to 236 because Staven, he suggests murdering the children to show the Empire how far the Dreamers are willing to go. And the mentor, he ain't having these. I will not allow this, Staven! He continued as if Staven hadn't even spoken. This is too far! I told Saw and I will tell you there are limits to what you can do. If you exceed them... You are on the side of hate and cruelty, and that's the side of the Empire. If you want to sit next to them at the table, killing children is the quickest way to do it. And Staven, I mean, Staven doesn't even care. Like, he continues to set up an argument against the Empire, which I even have to question to today's Empire. This is a different Empire than what we had in Legends. I mean, in Legends, they were inherently evil. In Canon, we have a few bad eggs for the most part, but the Empire isn't as bad as it once was before. Well, what's the, but um, Staven, there's, a, there's a phrase, uh, the banality of evil. That, like, evil doesn't have to necessarily be this over-the-top thing. Evil can just be falling into the routine and just doing your job in the face of the evil that exists and not questioning it. I think that's what the Empire now seems to be more like. Mm. It's not that every cog in the machine is evil. It's that they're cogs in the machine that don't question the evil of the commands that are coming from on top. Uh, very much a following orders type of thing. And the Empire definitely changed in that sense. Sorry, I just... That, yeah. was, that was something that popped in my head. I knew I was going to forget it if I waited. No, no. I mean, that's exactly it. Because Staven, his his outlook is that these children are all rotting on the inside. If they're left here, they're going to turn out bad. And I, like that was definitely a heart of one of the major things, especially for Sin's character. Like She really had a hard time with that. 
Um, you know, and, and I mentioned earlier about Dell. You know, we talked about that aspect of him with the stun blast. There's a great line between him and Aiden on on two thirty four. He goes, "I just want to make sure you weren't too rattled by what happened today." He replied, "We chat with, laugh with, eat with, and fight alongside these people. We even sleep next to them, but they're still the enemy." This is harder than combat. It's easier to kill someone whose favorite color you don't know or who hasn't trusted you with their dreams. And it was that aspect where he's talking about harder than combat. I mean, when you get into, especially the ladies, you know, like they're really thinking this stuff through. Like the guys, we don't get into their heads so much, especially Gideon. Like Gideon, Gideon's all in. Like he's totally the imperial. Like he might as well be the propaganda poster guy. Whereas Dell, you know, we get this side plot with Dell and the Chanderfan scientists going off into this cave that the Chanderfan had found. And there's all these statues that have different shapes and they got crystals inside. And Dell realizes, you know, that they're robots of some form. And like, there's that whole side plot. Like I was expecting something really big to pay out of that, which in the end it wasn't as big or cool as I was hoping it was going to be. But you know, he, that's his moral crux is dealing with the Chandra fan because the Chandra fan is really smart. He's got information that Dell recognizes, you know, if this guy was under different circumstances, he would be with us. How can I make that happen? How can I, you know, find a way to contact the Empire and, and secure this guy a spot? You know, I mean, the guy's dying and he's literally only on this side because that's all he's got. But if we offer him a way to live, if we offer to heal him, maybe we can bring him in. So like Dell in a sense is a dreamer in his own way, you know, and I thought that that was really cool the way they play with that. And that fact that Gideon is always like, like they put Gideon in the perfect spot. They're like, you need to go in and you need to, you need to stir up the crap, you know, like you need to stir the stick. And he's like, yeah, I'll do that. Like he's ready to play the bad guy and he's ready for the rest of the team to do what has to be done as well. And he doesn't know that they're having these moral moments and stuff yet. Dell, he recognizes it with Aiden right away and Aiden's recognizing it with sin right away. So like, I thought that was a really cool dynamic. I kept waiting for a moment where they would all get together and have that out, but they never really got there. We're the ones that really get to to ponder those ramifications for the characters. Yeah, and it's one of those things where, you know, whether it's in war, in real life, or in storytelling, right? If The more you dehumanize the enemy, the easier it is to kill them. And part of dehumanizing them is also not even just the idea that it'll be easy to kill them, although that is a big part of it. But the more you dehumanize the enemy, the more you make them the other the less likely it is you're going to feel as though you could be tempted to their side. Because in essence, what we're seeing here is that, yeah, while Dell is in the process of getting close to the Chatterfan Pikau, he's thinking, maybe I could bring Pikau into our side. The more he does that, the more he's becoming sympathetic to the side that they're going out to, to the dreamers, as you were saying. It's that fine line of, you know, if you get close enough to, to turn someone from their side to yours, a lot of times it puts you in danger of being turned to their side because you are sympathizing, you're empathizing, you're looking at them at a, a human level, so to speak, um, rather than otherwise. So, again, very, very well handled. I think just in general, um, it's a book that I think most fans are going to be able to enjoy, whether you play the game or not, um, and whether or not you've ever really looked at it in, in this particular perspective. It's easy to say, well, I don't want to read a book because it's about the Imperials making him a hero. That's like reading a book about World War II and the Nazis are the heroes. Just give it a try. I think mm-hmm. you're going to dig this one. Yeah, no, there was there was a lot of great dialogue, a lot of great moments. Uh, you know, every time it the action and the anticipation built up, like you felt it. Like you were just like, oh, my God, this is this is getting intense. There were like three or four scenes like that. And, you know, you'd mentioned right at the beginning that, that there's question as to whether or not Aiden killed Lux. And there was a, I mean, even that, that scene, when it all happens, before we find out that the blaster was set to stun, the dialogue is great. Lux, before his death, says, Hope, Aiden. 
It's at the root of everything we believe. Without it, we're nothing. She replies, if hope is all you have, and you already are nothing, and you know what they say, living hope, die in despair. Bam! She fires. I was just like, oh, oh my... Like, that, that was going to be the opening quote for this edition of the Star Wars Timeline Gold, actually. The, the limit, nice. it's until <laughs> Until I was reading from, uh, from a certain point of view, and Boba Fett has the line, when the boss says Bosco, we Bosca. I'm like, okay, that one, that one works. <laughs> that works. That works. <laughs> it, getting back to the robot, so... Is that a plot that, that they could have just left out? I mean, what was the significance there for you? I mean, I was excited at first, but when it all played out, I, I felt deflated. I felt like that was the the one aspect of it that didn't really provide enough payoff. It was one of those things that it's there to draw those two characters together and to give us sort of a, well, why are the bodies going to be taken away at the end kind of thing? So it works to sort of wrap up some loose ends at the very end. But otherwise, yeah, I felt like that was kind of a weird additional thing. But if if not for that, they would have had to have some some other way to draw together um, Dell and Pikau so that there could, there could be that sympathy. And maybe it could have just been, you know, fixing ships or whatever. Um, so, yeah, the fact that they found something mysterious and we never really get much in the way of answers to it, we just learn a little bit about how they fit into hiding the bodies or burying the bodies in the end. It did feel like a little bit of light payoff, but I I sort of turned and looked back at it after reading the book as, well, it wasn't really so much there for payoff to what the droids were. It was more payoff to that connection between Dell and Pikau um, to give them something secret that was just theirs and set them apart from Staven. So it worked for what it needed to do. But yes, because of the nature of what that MacGuffin essentially was that they were chasing after, what truth they were chasing after. Yeah, it felt like there was some um, some loose end left to where the heck that was going to go. I think they almost had that Voofy raw feeling of that droid from the Lando books back in the day. You know, See, like, that was much was better like, than I thought, because I was thinking of the Guardian uh, stone or whatever they are uh, uh, things in the Jar Jar disappeared arc of uh, Clone Wars. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I kept wondering, like, are we going to, like, see, like, references to this? Because, like, it almost had that terracotta China feel, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, there's this whole army of these dro- well, the robots idea, under here. Nobody knows what they're and the for. crystal-based droid technology and crystal-based uh, uh, things. I mean, that sort of goes into the whole thing we have now with kyber crystals inside lightsabers and, and the way that they are sort of affected by emotion. They have to, quote-unquote, bleed to turn them red. Um, but also stuff like what we get with the Ruhr crystal for the immortal Ruhr um, in the Afra comics and in eventually tied into the screaming citadel as well so uh, they, they definitely are leaning on this crystal technology thing much more in canon than they ever did in legends for better or worse because it's it's an odd motif to keep seeing repeat itself well speaking of for better or worse if we were to take this one next to the first battlefront book which oddly enough this one takes place before the second one or before the first one uh, which one would you definitely say is the better of the two? It depends on what you're looking for. I think, in general, this is a better book. Um, more insight into the characters, more moral dilemmas for the characters. This is much more about seeing it from the Empire's point of view, adding some moral ambiguity, and giving us a good sort of spy tale, almost. Whereas Battlefront 1, uh, Twilight Company, by Alexander Freed, um, that was much more get-to-know-like-one-character, sort of. Um and just the harsh re- realities of war as kind of the meat grinder. Mm-hmm. So I think they were trying to do two different things. This was trying to tell us an imperial point of view and introduce these specific characters. Battlefront 1 didn't have any characters it had to introduce or link to the game at all. 
And it was a game that was basically faceless hordes of soldiers versus each other and countless casualties without anybody ever really giving a crap. Like, I, like when I character dies in Battlefront, I'm like, okay, next. Mm-hmm. Ne- next next body. Next next respawn. Um, because there was no story to it. And in essence, that's the meat grinder aspect that Twilight Company had. They're just very different stories. I mean, to have Battlefront be a name emblazoned on both of them is kind of surprising. It's going to be surprising to some who don't play the games because they don't feel anything like each other. Although, I will point out that this is not Star Wars Battlefront Inferno Squad. This is Star Wars Battlefront 2 Inferno Squad. So even the name of the book denotes that this is the second game. So we should expect a tonal shift. If we expect a tonal shift between the games, a tonal shift between Twilight Company and Inferno Squad. At least to me. But yeah, I definitely would recommend this book over... That one. Not that not that Twilight Company was bad, but this is, mm-hmm. in my opinion, by far a more enjoyable experience than reading Twilight Company. Interesting. See, I'm I'm in that same boat of they were both really good, and for me, I think what sets Inferno Squad higher is what I was hoping for the first one, and that's the playthrough. You know, I mean, both books. If we were to continue those character stories as their own little series, I would dig. I would I would be just as excited for the characters from the first one to continue on as these characters. And I think like, that's one of the things that when I get done with these books, I'm more excited about is the potential of where we could go from here. Whereas so far they're just one and done tales. Whereas at least this one, like we've got a story mode in the game Whereas the first battlefront we didn't. So that felt like a loss. This one definitely feels like it's got more potential because of that alone. But again, that potential is still there for the first one. You know, I mean, what they did with each one, like you said, it, it, it comes for what you're looking for first and foremost, and it grows from there. But I, I really hope that both of these stories, they come back to eventually or find a way to make these characters tie in more. Kind of like what we've done with Ray Sloan. You know, I mean, she's a more prominent character, but she's never really had many starring roles yet. I would say Aftermath, as close as we get to her really starring in a, in a feature book. I think, though, also, I, I wonder about poor Alexander Freed. Right. Because with this book, it's, hey, Christy Golden, we would like you to write a book that is a tie in to Inferno Squad in Battlefront 2. And hey, here's the story of Inferno Squad in Battlefront 2. And here's all this information about the characters and all this kind of stuff. Whereas for Alexander Freed, it had to have been, hey, we'd like you to make a a book that's based on Battlefront 1. At which point he looks at the game and goes, with what? (laughs) Right. Because there's really nothing in Battlefront 1 that you can build a story off of. Uh, Not in any real sense. And that's why, I mean, in essence, you could say that that Twilight Company was inspired by Battlefront. But it's certainly not a tie-in to Battlefront, because there's nothing in Battlefront to tie into at all. Um, Having the Battlefront name on it was more a matter of cross-promotion than actually connective story tissue at all. Uh, In this case... It is connective story tissue. It is essentially a product line connection of the game to the book in a way far beyond what we saw otherwise. Um, And I think it's to their credit that in choosing how to do a tie-in, they made this a story that takes place prior to the game. Because the game is supposed to have events that span all the way from the Battle of Endor up through The Force Awakens, at least. Um, Yeah. And any other time... Putting this book in, anything after Return of the Jedi would have spoiled some of the game or had us wondering about the way the continuity would work between the book and the game and that sort of thing. But to give it to us early, what we have now is essentially an origin story for characters that we see later who probably won't get much of an origin story, just sort of a brief description of who they are. 
as we kick off the events of the game. This is how to do a game tie-in novel that makes us care about the characters, get into the story yep. of the game without blowing anything or spoiling anything for the game. Although, again, I would argue that the fact that we know that Dell and Gideon and Aiden are cast with big-name people, um, or now becoming big-name, they are cast with voice actors and such, and motion capture actors who are going to appear in the game, um pretty much gave away the fact that Sane was going to have to die or something by the time this book was over with. But, you know, uh, at some point, if you're tying things together, something is going to lead to suspicions about the other. And I guess that was one that, you know, unless they were going to just stick to the three members of the team and have no high stakes because we knew all of them would survive, then, you know, what else were they going to do? I think I, I would have been griping much more to find out later that, hey, we only had three characters and all of them must survive because they're in the game. Kind of like not having high stakes in most stories with Luke and Leia. You know, Luke and Leia are stranded on an island, and the only question whether they're stranded on the island in this Rebels in the Wild issue of the Marvel series is whether or not they screwed um, and had actual incest, um, <laughs> not whether they're going to survive, because of course they're going to survive. They're in the other films. Um, yeah. Whereas in this case, Han and Chewie and Death Troopers, yeah. you know, there's my yeah, exactly. Whereas in this case, it's it's the line from a uh, for Family Guy, right? Hey, we got four or five main characters of the sh of the movie on this ship. I think we're gonna be fine. Um, whereas <laughs> in this case, you know, we had somebody who we knew their fate wasn't yet determined, so they could die. And yes, it made me think that probably something was gonna happen ahead of time. But I'd rather that and see how it plays out and affects the other characters, then have no sense of menace at all by just having characters we know are going to return. So for mm -hmm. that to be the main quibble I had with reading the book, um, I think that's, that's a minor thing overall. Because otherwise, the opposite of it, I think, would have been a bigger gripe. Yeah. I think the downside is, is the way that these books are being produced, I don't think we're going to get to come back to these guys. I, I don't feel like any of these... We're going to not see a Battlefront series or an Inferno Squadron series branch out of this. Although, if we did, I would love it. Um, I think, overall, I really enjoyed this book. I would definitely put it up there in my top ten, maybe even top five so far. Uh, it, it just it delivered on, on so many levels that I wasn't expecting for. Like, the espionage and stuff, I don't always enjoy espionage-type stories, but... The way that Golden wrote this one, man, it delivered. It delivered in such a way that I had a smile on my face through most of it. And when the oh crap moments happen, I mean, the moment with Azen, Aiden, and Gideon, I was like, oh my god, it's Game of Thrones with Sansa all over with Littlefinger. Like, it was such a great moment the way when Staven came out and he had that rifle and he slams into the one of the three that he fills as the Imperial. I'm like, oh my god. I was beside myself with joy, grief, and worry at the same time. I mean, like I said, Golden has definitely proved herself as one of the hard-hitting new authors of the new canon. And I, I I, think the only downside for me is that she didn't get to do Sword of the Jedi, because I would have just gone tickled. Like, I love the fact that she got to write in Legends, because she is becoming one of my favorite authors. Yeah, it's a, again, great book. Definitely check it out. It's going to give you a Stover effect for the game. Uh, if you've read Rebel Rising, this makes a great counterpoint to it. Lots of stuff that I've pretty much said before. Um, but yeah, definitely going to be one of those that you should pick up, you should read. If you don't, then you're missing out. Not just on the backstory of the characters from the game, but you're missing out on a really good, solid, intriguing, and uh, uh, question-raising, if that's a, a correct phrase here, uh, Star Wars story. Uh, to, to end with a toast, if I may, since the book does. Ooh, you may, sir. Uh, to the best team the Empire has ever assembled, to Inferno Squad, as 
Iden Versio says at the end of the book. Tinfoil Squadron! Dang, dang. Not only is there things that are clinking around, so we know that Mark's got some beer bottles or something over there, but you notice that it's plural because we didn't actually clink because we're on different parts of the country, so he's been drinking heavily for this episode. <laughs> yeah, I've got I've got a few glasses from the last few times. I come down here and I podcast with my daughter for Rebels Roundtable. You don't bring her beer? And each time I, I know, I leave glasses down here because I fill them up with water because I'm constantly drinking between takes, uh. and then, yeah, then I got like, I forget to take them up, and I'm like, oh man, I got, a, I got five glasses yes. down here. It came in handy. For water, good <laughs> cover good that's all right you, half the time we hear me popping open a soft drink and you're like that that could easily be a beer or something even though i don't drink so whatever uh oh see there we are there we are we always get to this point and then almost forget to have the contest in there so if you've listened this long then earlier in the episode about an hour and a half or so ago probably you heard mention of us doing a giveaway of leia princess of alderaan by Claudia Gray, one of those two authors that uh, we talked up uh, earlier about being some of the better authors that we've seen for the new canon. So, if you're interested in getting yourself a copy of the Force Friday 2 release of Leia, Princess of Alderaan, here's what to do. Send us your contest entry by sending an email to swbeyondfilms, all is one word, at starwarsfanworks.com. In your subject line, put Leia. In the body of the message, and you can give us a message, you know, to the show or something if you like, but the primary thing to put in the body of the message is just your name and your mailing address in case you actually win. Get those entries in, we'll say by Halloween night. Okay, so you have all the month of October that's left to get those entries in, and once we hit November 1st, sorry, entries are closed, and that is when we'll go ahead and draw the winner for that one. So again, subject line Leia. Name and mailing address in the body of the email in case you win. And, of course, send it to SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com by the end of October, by Halloween night. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. And again, a huge Starkiller base size thank you to our editor-in-chief over there, Michael Yankovic, for editing, mixing, and mastering each episode of Beyond the Films for your listening entertainment and to help us keep going. We appreciate that as always. And remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, second airborne division of podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Stitcher and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're there. Uh, you can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms, or just type in Stars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It is literally the best way to interact with us. It is our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars questions, Legends questions, EU questions, Canon questions, or questions about other things like Mo 
Babylon 5 or Star Trek, go ahead and shoot them over to us because we like talking about everything. You can email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we want to again thank our sponsor, Tops, and we also have our Audible trial if you're into uh, Audible or audiobooks. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Audible has more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars expanded universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because, of course, Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months. That's one year with no questions asked. And in this digital age, if you're thinking of making that switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, it's been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that the next Star Wars convention exclusive will require you to give blood, get a wristband, get a tattoo, then a tattoo will tell you exactly what time it is in Orabesh. You'll have to go through and turn that Orabesh into English to figure out when it is you're supposed to stop by and pick up your book, and it turns out that it's actually in the past, so you'll have to invent time travel to go back and get your copy, and it turns out you're going to have to get that thing signed yourself. Son of a... You know why they put the steps that high, right? So the next one after that, they can be like, we just need one sperm cell and an egg cell. That's all we need. (laughs) Building their own clone army, basically funding (laughs) it through the sales of exclusive copies of Star Wars books. Uh, It is a Marvel Madness theme. (laughs) That's that's vaguely terrifying. (laughs) 